I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Hi, I'm Kate Catherall, co-founder and partner at The Arena, and this is The Arena Talks podcast. At ARENA, we shine a light on civic leaders who are working for a more equitable and inclusive democracy. Today, I have the great pleasure of interviewing a leader who I have admired since I first met her a couple of years ago, Amber Goodwin. Amber is the founding director of the Community Justice Reform Coalition. CJRC is the nation's leading coalition working on policy reform and building resources for communities of color, working at the nexus of gun violence prevention and criminal justice reform. Amber has spent the last 17 years working for progressive advocacy, grassroots, and electoral campaigns. Today, we discuss the state of gun violence in America, how we can address the problem holistically, and the structural barriers our society faces as a result of deep-seated white supremacy and toxic masculinity. We also talk about hope and the incredible work that CJRC is doing. I am so inspired by the work that Amber is doing, and I think you will be too. All right. So Amber, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I wanted to start by just talking a little bit about your story and helping our listeners get to know you. So in a few minutes or less, can you give us the birth to now? Yeah, um, absolutely. And thank you so much for for having me um, on the podcast today. Um, So I was born in Texas. I always have to start with that because if you know any Texans, we are, we are proud, but if you're born in Texas, it makes you in Texas, it makes you an actual Texan versus people who came here, um, as fast as they could. Um, and I, um, really have spent the last almost 17 years, 17, 18 years working in progressive, uh, mostly democratic politics, um, worked on the Obama campaign in 2008, was a union organizer. Um, and I was really fortunate to really get my start working uh, in politics on the Hill um, as a staff assistant intern and then staff assistant. And I also um, was able to work for a lot of the people who were part of Paul Wellstone's campaign in 2002. Um, And after he passed away, um, we're able to work with a lot of the fantastic people that are still working on the ground in Minnesota from Wellstone Action and uh, Grassroots Solutions. So I talk about that because it really, I, I, it was, you know, 18, 16 years ago, and it really was a time before we had a lot of technology and even data and analytics that we have now in campaigns. We would have never even thought about having a podcast back then to interact with people, but we were really able, I was really able to learn a lot from people um, about um, how to actually engage and have conviction in um, the work that uh, lies ahead of many of us that choose to be organizers or are forced to be organizers. Um, And I think that it's followed with me um, the rest of my life. And so um, about four years ago, I uh, uh, started working for um, Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, one of my personal heroes, um, and I think a hero to many, um, doing some work on uh, national policy initiatives and then also state-based initiatives to reduce gun violence. And uh, what I saw in the process of learning uh, so much about the legislative process and how gun violence prevention works in this country, I also saw a lot of holes in how people of color in particular are uh, seen as leaders and also seen not seen as survivors of gun violence, um, mostly seen as criminals. Um, and I saw an opening um, into something that I really wanted to pursue and, and really felt 
was um, a need in the national gun violence prevention community. And so I started the Community Justice Reform Coalition. We're about two and a half, almost three years old um, as of this, this fall. Congratulations. That's awesome. I remember when you were just launching. I know. <laughs> You've accomplished I know. I, so much since then. Yeah, it's been, it's, been a, it's been a road, and I can't believe it's been almost two years since that time. So, yeah. Um, so I want to just sort of share with our listeners what CJRC does and why it's so important. Obviously, CJRC is a national advocacy coalition, and you promote and invest in evidence-based policies and programs to prevent gun violence and uplift criminal justice reform. Uh, in urban communities of color. So before we get into sort of the overall approach and how it works, I think it's important to kind of ground the conversation in the state of those issues, gun violence and criminal justice in America, and how they're interconnected. A lot of the time, you know, especially in the media, we focus on like specific statistics. We hear about the number of mass shootings that occur in the country, um, which are obviously horrendous, Um, but we don't really get the broader context and the larger systemic issues and, um, you know, the stuff that isn't making the national news every day, what should all Americans know and understand that they aren't necessarily getting uh, from mainstream media right now? Yeah, I mean, I think just the, the sheer numbers and then knowing what I didn't know before four years ago, which is what laws exist and what laws can help and what other ways there are to prevent people can actually advocate around gun violence. When I started working uh, for Gabby and Mark, I actually said in my interview, um, I don't know anything about guns. And they were very gracious to bring me on board, even though I said that in an interview. Um, and I actually said guns are not my issue because I didn't believe that they were my issue. I'm very fortunate and privileged that I've never been directly impacted by gun violence. And so um, it kind of was a thing that was over there and it was other people's kind of problem. And I think that that's a lot of how America, everyday Americans think about gun violence. And so, you know, there are over 30,000 people who... Um, are killed by guns every year. The majority, which this is not also talked about a lot, is the majority of people who actually die by gun violence die by suicide. So about two-thirds of the people who die every year, um, mostly white men, um, that die by suicide. So that's also this huge problem in this country that um, isn't really part of the the narrative. Less than about 2% of the people who die every year by gun violence actually die in mass shootings. And there's different formulas to how people say either mass shootings or mass murders, but usually it's around if four more people are shot and killed in, in an incident. Um, so that's how they, they kind of, uh, the, the CDC or, or the government kind of calculates it. Um, and so one of the things that I want people to know is that gun violence disproportionately impacts communities of color the same way that the, commu- the, the criminal justice system impacts communities of color in almost the exact same numbers. If you look at the United States population, just looking at the African-Americans and Black Americans in this country, we're less than, we're around 13% of the population, 12 to 13% of the population, but in some years, we're 50 to 60% of the prison population and over 50 to 60% of the the homicides and the murders that happen by gun violence in this country. Um, And so we think that there's a direct correlation that lies, um, not even theoretically, but just logically between how we are approaching who we're putting in prisons and how long we're locking people up and for what offenses. Um, And then also how we are treating people once they get out of prison, recidivism um, that is is part of mass incarceration. And then also how that relates directly to gun violence prevention and preventing people holistically from um, in, in reducing gun violence. So we look at both the supply and the demand side of of gun violence, which a lot of times we only hear about 
the actual gun and not the person who is behind the gun or in front of the gun. And so we think about that very holistically because even if we took every single gun out of the, everyone's homes, which we would not be able to do at this point because there are potentially more guns than people, um, we would still have um, you know, ways for people to be, uh, uh, communities, especially communities of color, to be locked up. And when you look at even a lot of the legislation um, that potentially on all sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, have, potentially, have thought about passing around gun violence prevention, one of the things we think about is really making sure that it's not on the backs of communities of color. And I'll give you a quick example, um, thinking about uh, trafficking legislation. And um, there is a problem in this country with trafficking guns, not just city to city, but state to state, um, country to country. And when we think about how heightened penalties are for offenses that potentially may be minor or potentially may be major, we want to make sure that when we are finding what, how we're going to actually prosecute people, that we are making it fair, um, that we're taking the people who are potentially dangerous off the streets, but that we're not just doing it and wiping out entire communities because that's what the piece of legislation says and, um, and, and that there are lots of communities that will be impacted. And so um, we think about this, again, legislation organizing very holistically, and we want to first, um, just like doctors uh, would do, we want to first do no harm and, and not harm the communities that are, are hurting right now. And in those communities, uh, for the most part, are communities of color. And I'll just end by saying that, you know, there are not millions of people going around killing people in the streets. There is a small population um, that I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, but a small population of people in most cities that are driving the most violence. And so for, for our organization and our partners, we really look at the, the population that's driving the most violence and figuring out not how to lock them up, but to give them what they need to be successful. And sometimes that's a job, sometimes that's food um, on, on the table, sometimes that's helping with wraparound services. But we, we think of it very individualized instead of thinking about it with just one piece of legislation that will cure everything, because we know that that has not been the case, especially for communities of color. That makes all the sense in the world. And it's amazing what a sort of complex problem it is, but how mm-hmm. little understanding there is around sort of the whole life cycle, yeah. um, which DGRC is, is definitely looking at. So to your last point, I think, um, you know, one of the things I have read up about on your website and heard you speak on before is a core tenet of your approach, which is that you promote evidence-based strategies, and uh, this is another thing that we just don't hear a lot about, right? We hear about the problem. We hear about what's wrong. We don't really understand the whole picture. And we're certainly not hearing a lot about um, what people are doing to actually you know, address the epidemic of gun violence. So can you talk a little bit about what's actually working and you know, looking at the map of where gun violence is happening, um, what it looks like to go into a community and really address it. Yeah, and I will say that I, I said that Gabby was is is and has always been one of my heroes, but I will say that the the people who are actually working on the ground, the people who have been directly impacted by gun violence like Gabby, but the people in our in communities of color, um, and I'll talk a little bit about street outreach workers and, and kind of what how they should be leading this work, but many times are are not fully funded. But one of the biggest challenges to a lot of what we kind of bucket together as group violence reduction strategies. One of the biggest challenges is 20, 30 years ago when a lot of these strategies were um, instituted in cities like Boston um, and had the evidence and the data to show that they were working, 
uh, a lot of funding, whether it was on the city level, municipal level, county level, or state level, was then taken away from the communities that needed it the most. When something started to work and there was a dramatic reduction, some, some people called it the Boston miracle in the early 90s, with um, really looking at that small population of people um, and focusing on them, they call it focused deterrence. Um, looking at that small population and saying, how do we create the wraparound services, whether it's from the city or um, local, uh, local folks who have been in the shoes of being maybe an active firearm offender themselves, what do we need to bring to that community and to that person to um, help to make the, the violence stop? And so a couple of the programs that we work with people, and so we don't do the direct intervention services, but we are moving into that space, but we work to advocate on behalf and get funding for these services. Um, uh, one of the, the, the biggest ones that many listeners may have heard of is the ceasefire strategy, which is very opposite of what you've probably heard of if you've been in New York, um, kind of stop and frisk where you just stop someone and say, you look dangerous, um, you're going to jail, or you need to pay this fine or whatever. Um, but it's a, it's a really data-driven approach that is, is a science um, that helps to build communities with a partnerships between clergy, community liber- um, leaders, many times law enforcement agencies, um, social services, kind of the wraparound services that I talked about, um, and really looking at the tiny population. There's a, um, and I'm forgetting his name off the top of my head, but there was a a data scientist who, um, researcher who said that less than half of 1% of a city's population drives over 50%, upwards of 50% of that city's violence. So I'll say that again, less than half of 1% of a city's population in many cities that all of us live in, drives over 50 to 60% of the, of, of the violence in the city. And so the, we're talking about homicides, the, the people that, the quote, that are quote unquote, um, what you hear about in the news that are dangerous, but a lot of times they're people that society has forgotten about, society many of us have thrown away. Um, and so these programs where they intervene are really looking at what, what does the person in this particular neighborhood need. So Ceasefire is one of those programs. Um, Advanced Peace, which is actually in California, um, they've been doing amazing work. Uh, they, off, they opened an office of neighborhood safety, which you'll hopefully see around the country, people opening these offices. The same way that we have health departments, the same way that we have police departments, we need offices that are just focused on reducing crime, but then also making sure that we're thinking about um, what services people need. Um, and then one that a lot of people have heard about as well is the Cure Violence programs, which really treats, uh, all these programs treat gun violence as a disease that needs to be eradicated the same way that we think about a lot of the public health issues that we have. And then also hospital-based uh, uh, violence prevention programs that work in, and they work directly inside hospitals. So those are, those are some of the programs um, that I mentioned. And I'll say just that all of them have the evidence and the data to show that they work if they are funded and if there is support, not just from a mayor or not just from a city council, but if the community is supporting these programs, they work. If the community does not and stakeholders do not support these programs and they're not funded, then they won't work. And we've seen in places, Chicago was defunded, a lot of their programs were defunded. Um, we've seen places like New York and Connecticut and, uh, and, and Maryland successfully fund through state legislatures um, a lot of this work. And so there's tons of ways for people to be involved. But what we're trying to do is make sure that people know that these programs exist and, and connect them directly with people who, who are, are doing the work on the ground. So I think that's a great transition to talk a little bit more about uh, your model, mm-hmm. which I know focuses a lot on getting the people who are most impacted by gun violence into positions of leadership 
um, to make them the faces and the voices of the movement. Um, and so a lot of this for you is about centering communities of color and um, having them drive the conversation. Can you talk uh, a little bit more about what that looks like, the programs that you're running, um, and why that's so important? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, we have a program called the Speakers Bureau, which is actually not a Speakers Bureau, I think traditionally as people would think of. Um, but it's an intergenerational leadership program that is really building a network of survivors and those that are directly impacted by gun violence, but also other intersecting issues, um, and really building a network of people that are working to uplift strategies that are successful, but then also um, making sure that there is an awareness and amplification of what's needed to be successful. And you know, I, I tell people all the time, especially post since the Parkland movement has started, that it is evident of what it looks like when society in this country gives a survivor or survivors the, the self-determination to figure out what it is that they need to be successful. And you saw that with, you know, Emma and David and how they told society what they needed. And, and we, we in turn were like, of course, that's what you need because you should be able to determine what it looks like. You need money for voter registration, let's do it. You think it's important to support young people, let's do it. And for me, that was an example of what we don't necessarily see whenever it comes to communities of color and um, especially um, you know, women of color um, and, and, and how our leadership is, is, is sometimes very much silent, or many times, I would say, many times silence. And so we wanted to take um, a lot of the people not and not have them say, "Oh, I am only working with CJRC," but really, we want to we want to uh, help them become leaders in whatever it is that they're already doing, and also what they want to do. And so, we do regional trainings that are very um, internal skills based for the people who are part of the Speakers Bureau. Um, Ninety eight percent of the Speakers Bureau is people that have been directly impacted by all forms of gun violence. Over half of them, I believe, are formerly incarcerated. Um, and when we looked at what made the most sense in terms of a kind of quote unquote emerging leader or leadership program, I initially said, you know, two years ago when we were thinking about starting this, that it made the most sense to just focus on young people and the millennial population. Um, but I went to an event and I was talking about the Speakers Bureau and someone who had spent 20 years in prison, 10 of those in the juvenile justice system, and then, um, and then 10 years um, in, in federal prison, came up to me afterwards and said, can I be a part of the Speakers Bureau? And I said, well, it's for young people. And he told me, I am not young, but I never got the same opportunities that you did because I told my personal story and said that I'd been an intern on the Hill. My parents could pay and afford for me to be an intern on the Hill. On the Hill. And he said, I'm not trying to dismiss what your experience was. My experience is I've never been able to be given the chance to be a leader. And so what about me? And I hadn't I hadn't even thought of that, of like an emerging leader doesn't have to be somebody who's young. It doesn't have to be someone who's in high school and it doesn't have to be somebody who is 20 years old or even under 30. And so we deliberately made sure that we were going and reaching out and going to where, going where people were already at that hadn't been given these, these chances that many of us have had. And so, um, yeah, so we, we bring everybody together um, twice a year um, for convening um, with a lot of other um, uh, national kind of organizers, and um, we're starting a new um, iteration in class. Uh, we will be in, in early 2019, but we'll always have, you know, this first class of, of the Speakers Bureau will um, continue to be part of a, a kind of alumni 
um, part of the, the organization that we're, we're pretty focused on right now, making sure that they have everything that they need. So, yeah, so that's that's what they do. They do like media trainings and, and other and um, other uh, kind of public speaking as well as part of the part of the speakers bureau. But it really is about building the network of people actually doing the work on the ground. And I think I had the good fortune of meeting some of these. Yeah, you did. Um, And you're doing this all over the country. So how many uh, young leaders have you, or leaders, I should say, have you now trained? So on the Speakers Bureau, we have 21 people, I believe, in the Speakers Bureau. But in terms of how many people we've actually trained, um, we have a training program that we also launched this summer, um, the Peacemaker Institute. Um, But it encompasses all the trainings that we do, whether we're training um, people on how to keep your community safe, working with hospitals, uh, you know, going and writing legislation yourself. Um, I mean, we've trained over, I think oh, this year, probably over 5,000 people, but um, the number will grow exponentially in the next couple of months because we are um, launching a, a new series of trainings that I'm really excited about that will be going directly into cities, hopefully, for that many of your listeners will, will be at. Amazing. 5,000. That is a lot. Yes. <laughs> um, so, and, and that actually um, makes me think of one other question I wanted to ask you, which is um, you have like an incredible, you're, you're a coalition and you have an incredible group of people who you've assembled around this work across the country. So who are the leaders and partners that, um, you know, you're collaborating with to build the movement? Yeah. So we work, we wouldn't be able to do the work without partners. Our, we work directly um, with my co-founder, uh, Pastor, Pastor Michael McBride, um, and he is the director of the um, Faith in Action uh, Live Free campaign, and they've been doing this work. Pastor Mike and uh, his staff and team on the ground have been doing this work for over a decade, and so um, they are really the people who are doing a lot of the technical assistance and are experts in, in this. And Pastor Mike has a brother named Ben McBride, who is just as fantastic as, as uh, Pastor Mike. And um, he also is, is leading a, a team of people who are really focused on building uh, trust and also making sure that there's legitimacy um, between communities and law enforcement. And so we work with them um, and are helping to uh, expand some of their programming outside of California. They've been very successful there. Um, we work with Cities United, which is works with, I think, mayors in over 50 to 100 cities across the country. And so they really um, are focused on working with both law enforcement, a lot of poli- big city police chiefs, and also um, mayors to make sure that they have the tools that they need to um, reduce gun violence, specifically in cities and using city funding uh, and city resources. Um, and then we just, we just have other kind of national partners, including we work with Amnesty International, We've worked with, um, you know, a, a, a variety of other state-based organizations like uh, Life Camp Inc. And so um, Civic Engagement Fund has also been a huge partner of ours who, who has helped a lot with a lot of the data and analytics that we're thinking about on how to, how to move the organization and, and movement forward. So, so, yeah, a lot of people that I'm really lucky, I've been only doing this for four years, and um, the people that I am honored to work with have been doing it for many of them for decades. And um, without um, any many, many times without any resources and, and definitely without um, the limelight of that you many times see with the mass shootings. So um, they are doing the work every single day. And so it's, it's really an honor to get to work with them. It's an incredible list of partners. Um, so I want to switch gears uh, quickly into just kind of looking ahead and sort of understanding the scope of the challenge in front of us, because obviously gun violence is something that, you know, 
our country is really grappling with in sort of an existential way and clearly a lot of misunderstanding and, and just a lot of different opinions on, um, on how we move forward. When you think about the biggest barriers to solving this like very massive problem, what are those barriers that, that your organization and other organizations are tackling? I'm going to be very completely honest. Um, I think two of the biggest ones are, um, well, one is white supremacy, uh, and then the other one is toxic masculinity. I, I, I say both of those with the, knowing the evidence and the data that many times when we hear about the mass shootings or the intimate partner violence, sometimes that we actually don't hear about, a lot of it is rooted in, in, in what we would generically call toxic masculinity. And when a gun is in... A situ- is, is put in a situation whether someone is a white supremacist or is, you know, racist or whatever, um, and the same with someone who is having issues with, um, you know, you know, intimate partner issues, um, it just exponentially uh, changes and makes the situation more deadly. All the data shows that when there is a, a gun present in a home and there is a male and female uh, domestic dispute, a woman is 500 times more likely to die if there was a gun present in the home than if there was not a gun present. Um, and so statistics like that, we don't really ever talk about, and we still are not talking as much about how many times we do hear about the mass shootings that there is a history of domestic violence or there is a history of, um, you know, uh, saying things around white supremacy or racist things online. And so I think that those are big barriers because a lot of people don't want to talk about them and don't want to figure out, is there a root of a problem of why there are so many guns in our country? Get to that first and also think about who has access to guns and where these guns are coming from and how they're being utilized um, are the, the biggest issues that we see in the gun violence prevention community um, and on, on all sides of the issue. And so um, I, I think that if we can really think about what are the root causes of gun violence, um, like the very, very root of, of, of the causes, and thinking about gun violence from a public health perspective, which I think, given the evidence that we do have um, around if that is, is a successful framework to think about gun violence, and really, when you think about I don't know, like if, if somebody had, um, if I had salmonella poisoning and I got sick and I went to the hospital, they wouldn't blame me for getting salmonella poisoning. They would figure out the chain of how I got that salmonella poisoning and figure it out, like start from the source and then go all the way to how I got sick and like what they were going to do to cure it. And like, we need to figure out ways to think about violence in a way that is thinking not just holistically, but like, how are we going to heal people and how do we um, do this in a way that doesn't harm people first and then getting to healing people um, to where we, we can really think about for no matter what color you are, you think before you pick up a gun. Um, Cause right now a lot of people aren't doing that. And so we, we want to make sure that people have alternatives to picking up a gun and, and shooting it in, in, in any situation. So that's, that's part of, you know, what I think are barriers, but there, some of them are very like <laughs> large barriers that will take a lot to fix. But I think changing the framework around victimization, survivorship, who's a survivor, who's not, um, and then, you know, access to guns and, and what that and, and how they're moving around our, our cities, especially is, is going to be something that's very important. Yeah, sort of existential, deep-rooted problems for our country. And I, I appreciate you bringing that into the conversation. 
One of the statements when I was preparing for the interview and kind of looking through your materials and your website, um, one of the things I read um, that I just think connects to the last part of what you were saying on your site was, we believe that to truly free ourselves from trauma, we must reimagine and redefine what safety and security mean for those at the margins of society. And I read that and it's like, not the thing that I'll be totally honest, not the thing that like, you know, I was expecting to read when looking in gun violence solutions, but it makes so much sense in sort of an existential way. Can you talk a little bit about like what that means? You know, examples of leaders who are doing this kind of work in addition to yourself and just, just share a little bit more about yeah, that. I, mean, I didn't think about what safety meant until I started working on gun violence because I thought for, for people who I'm an African-American woman who grew up in Texas. And for me, safety is not having a, a law enforcement or police officer outside of my house right now. But for my next door neighbor, who's a wonderful, um, not, not person of color for her and her family, her husband is a retired police officer. There is security if they have a police vehicle outside of their house. And so I think we have to think about how do we reframe what safety means. And my, my colleague and friend Dante Barry from Million Hoodies talks about this a lot of, it means different things to different people, but I think in the United States and especially even in the progressive movement, we thought safety means one thing. And so we say, okay, if we do X, if we put more police or if we pass this one bill, or if we do this, then everybody will be safe. And then we aren't thinking about the trans woman of color who is getting murdered and nobody's talking about, you know, her being misgendered or other things, problems that are, are in violence that's happening to, to trans people of color in this country, or we're just not talking about them at all, or we're not talking about how it's hard for people who are maybe immigrants or on DACA um, to um, really have a positive relationship with law enforcement. Um, but that doesn't mean that other people can't have positive relationships. We just have to reframe and I think retrain our brains to think that safety is going to mean something different for um, depending on your experience. Um, and so I think we need to think about how that just plays into what decisions we make. And then I think from a public policy perspective, definitely thinking about what that means um, when we're passing legislation or, 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 or doing different initiatives. So um, that's that's kind of what I was thinking whenever <laughs> whenever you just asked about that. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. I wanted to ask one other question that is sort of been a thread throughout all of this and has more to do with doing the kind of work that you're doing in the current political climate and just kind of coming back to this idea. You know, when you were talking just now about reframing and kind of like retraining our brains to think about how you know, what questions we're asking when we think about the problem and the solution that we're talking about. One of the central themes, I think, for everyone who lives in America right now is sort of these competing narratives around facts and truth on the political spectrum, but also it's just been something that's kind of been a theme in any way that you could consider dividing the country and kind of different slices of our society. What has it been like to work on these issues in this age of competing truths and competing realities for people when we live in these bubbles and, and are seeing such polarizing narratives coming from different sources that people seem to believe wholeheartedly in or not? 
It's been really difficult. And I will say that it's difficult for me personally, but I can't imagine what it's like for someone who doesn't have access to the resources that I do to get through all of this. Um, I think I, I saw, I met you probably right after the election or met in person for the first time. And I was like sixth in line for seeing my therapist in DC. <laughs> she was like, you're actually going to have to be put on a waiting list because there's a lot of people with some major things that are happening. Um, and so I, it's really difficult because I have the realization that I actually am going to be fine. And technically in many instances, my life will change. I am still a black woman in this country and that is a lot, but my, I'm going to end up being okay. I hope. Um, and there are people who do not have that same feeling. Their, their, their vision of safety is went out the window in, in December or November of 2016. And so I think a lot about them, um, and what they, in asking them what they need to be, how I can help them versus telling them what they need to do to make it through the Trump administration. And, you know, in, in any, in any case, I think, you know, there'd be challenges if we had a Democrat in office. So I, I think that that's, that's what I think a lot about, but, and it's been really hard. We're, you and I are organizers and we or are, we're at our heart. We're Obama. We're like I'm Obama forever. <laughs> like I will always be, that is my guy forever. But, um, it has been really hard to find hope. And like, I know that sounds really cheesy and like, I just, that's on a poster somewhere, but it is because I've never felt anything like the hope that I did whenever I saw him live in Boston in 2004. Like I can't describe the feeling being a black organized community organizer and seeing him. And it's been really hard to see the decline in this country. But that being said, to answer, I think, a previous question about leaders, I have not been as hopeful about this country as I have after two nights ago when Andrew Gillum became the Democratic nominee, and I'll tell you why. I went to school the same time in Tallahassee as Andrew, and I met him. And I was like, that guy's going places. <laughs> and uh, one of our mutual friends was like, yeah, he's going to be um, Sharon Lettman. Hicks, if she listens to this, she was, she's been telling me this for almost 20 years. She said, he is going to be governor of Florida. And I was 18 or 19 at the time. And I said, there's literally no way he's going to be governor of Florida. He's like a black guy. And that just doesn't happen. He became a county commissioner. He became mayor. And the, the, the coolest thing about him besides him being just a fantastic human and having a fantastic family that supports him wholeheartedly is that working in the gun violence prevention community, I was one of the first people he called before he took on the NRA and won. And, um, or I don't know if I was one of the first people, but I was one of the people he called to say, Hey, what's going on? Tell me the lay of the land. And I am just kind of a, a nobody. And, you know, the mayor of Tallahassee is, is thinking of calling me and saying, you know, here, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of starting this, um, this initiative to make sure that other mayors across the, the country don't have to go through the same thing. And he took on the NRA as a black mayor in Tallahassee in the panhandle of Florida and said, I'm not backing down publicly or internally. And I don't care what anybody has to say, except the constituents and the people that he represents. And, and he won. I mean, the NRA sued him and, a, and, and people don't talk, they talk a lot about the fact that he won and like it was an upset, but I think he was always supposed to be in this place um, to, to do this and really inspire people across the country. And I think we've seen candidates like him. Uh, I was about to name all of the black, you know, potential gubernatorial candidates, but, you know, Stacey Abrams, but I just think about, you know, uh, all, all the people across the country who, who are really bucking the system and, and, and saying, 
um, we have to instill some sense of hope for the people that um, that need it the most. And I know that he didn't win this 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 primary for people like me, but for people like me, it uplifted my spirits because I need we I think we all needed to see somebody with the, the, the politics of conviction to, to, to be in, in such a space to, to help us get through the next couple of weeks of, of what's going to be a pretty, pretty crazy end of the, the election cycle. Absolutely. Tuesday night was a pretty, pretty yeah. beautiful night in a yeah. lot of places. Um, and you answered my last question for you, which is going to be about what's giving you hope in the midst of all of the challenges before us. So I'm going to ask you one mm-hmm. more. Uh, for those who can't come to meet you or hear you speak in person, but want to support your work, how can they support Community Justice Reform Coalition? Where can they learn more? And how can they Yeah, um, we are doing a ton of stuff online and offline. So first you can go to our website, which is um, communityjusticerc.org. Um, you can also um, follow us on Twitter, which I'm going to, this is so terrible. This is what happens when you're not a millennial and don't know anything about social media. Um, so our Twitter handle is at CJR Coalition. So follow us on Twitter. We'll have a lot of information there. We are doing in-person trainings all across the country, starting in Baltimore. Um, the 15th and 16th of September will be in New York. The I believe the 28th and 29th. We're also going to be in Indianapolis, Chicago, Birmingham, Miami, I believe Houston, LA, and San Francisco before the end of the year. If we are not coming to your city or your location, um, we would love to do that. So please reach out to me. Um, And all of these trainings that we do are free. Uh, There's going to be free food. So that usually brings people to want to come (laughs) and be a part of this. And what we do with the training is really do a hard skills training um, of what it takes to be a gun violence prevention advocate and center communities of color in this fight. Uh, And also um, make sure that we meet people where they are. We know that uh, there's a false narrative that you have to come into uh, a, a, um, an office and know everything about an issue. And that's the only way you can be an advocate. But we believe that anyone can be, everyone can be a peacemaker and everyone can be an advocate. So we want to make, make sure that people know that you don't have to be an expert on gun violence or know anything. You just need to show up. If you can't be there in person, we have monthly conference calls and also webinars with a lot of our partners. And so the next one will be um, the last Thursday in September, which I believe is going to be September 27th. We'll have that up on our website. Um, And in those webinars, we do technical assistance. We answer questions that people have about advocacy, about policy, uh, and then also always make sure that we're highlighting um, someone who is working on the ground and also uh, folks that are survivors of gun violence and not just having them tell their story, but also having them tell how their story has impacted their activism and um, in, in what they're actually doing and, and how people can help them be successful. So we would love for people to be involved in, in any of that. And so um, any, any questions that folks have, please feel free to reach out. Amber, thank you so much for the incredibly meaningful work that you're doing and for coming on the Arena Talks oh, thank podcast. Thank you so much for having me. 